Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today is Jason Butler, independent personal finance expert and author of the FT Guide to Wealth Management and personal finance writer Kate Bealey. In this week's Portfolio Clinic, we feature a young investor who hopes to grow enough funds over the next five to ten years to buy a home without having to take out a mortgage. Jason, now you reviewed the portfolio. So first of all, if you have a, a time horizon of about 10 years and are looking to build up a substantial lump sum for a house purchase or even other purposes, roughly what shape should the portfolio take in terms of asset allocation? Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because 10 years, although it sounds a long time, in investment terms, it isn't. And it also depends whether you start off with a lump sum, which you're trying to grow, uh, or hedge against uh, house price growth, for instance, if you're going to buy a house, or whether you're saving regularly or a combination of the two. Now, I'll explain why that, why that matters in a minute. But let me explain about time horizon and investing, because this is a thing that a lot of clients and a lot of investors and, and just lay people out there get wrong. Now, the reason why time horizon is important is because although share prices and investment prices don't exactly correlate with economic activity, they're obviously eventually, if economies aren't making money and companies aren't making money, um, then that has to be reflected eventually in share prices. Now, if you take Japan as an example, uh, Japan's stock market topped out in 1989 and is now about a third of the current of the value then, and that's uh, 26 years later. So, so. Economic cycles and investment um, malaise can be a lot longer than you, uh, than you think. Now, that being said, uh, the average economic cycle, the average stock market cycle is about eight to nine years. So in other words, if you have a, a very poor returns or uh, a, a fall in the market, normally sort of about 10 years, you can probably come out of that, even if it's just money back. So that's why we say time horizon is important, because stock markets can behave irrationally. They can be in the doldrums, supply and demand, etc. But equally, there can be times when you could quadruple or even you know, more your money, depending on the market and the type of investment. So that's why time horizon is important. Mm. And how you fund your investment is so important, because if you start off with a lump sum and you put it in an investment, say you put £10,000 in the stock market and it halves in the next three years, um, if it halves, it's got to grow by 100%, hasn't it? So if it drops 50%, what you've got left has to grow by 100% to recover, let alone make a return. Yeah. Whereas if you're saving regularly, there's something called pounds cost averaging. If you're saving regularly into a volatile asset, an asset that goes up and down but, but eventually rises, um, you will end up paying less on average than the average price of the investment. So if the price is going up and down, when it falls in value, you're buying more units or more shares. And when it goes up, you're buying less. So actually, pounds cost averaging is good for accumulators where you've got a volatile asset that in the long term rises. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good point. Um, yeah. Um, now, you're talking about time horizon, but uh, as we're turning to the asset classes, uh, this readers um, is mostly invest in equities, I think, bar one bond fund. Um, yes. Is that correct for um, a growth portfolio? Because people do say equities and long-term growth, or even if you're looking at, well, let's say longest-term growth, um, should um, should people have some other assets? Well, if you have, this is a, a big caveat, and not all of your investors or readers will believe in this, but if you have faith in capitalism, if you have faith in the future, if you have faith in business, uh, which I personally do, it doesn't mean it's a straight line or it's all perfect, but if you believe that 
um, ultimately companies um, will find new ways of working, new products, new services, and there's continual a desire for an improving standard of living, then you have to put your faith in business. So in the long run, and this has been borne out by history, in the long run, capitalism and business, uh, generally speaking, should provide the highest rate of return. And that's because companies have to pay a higher rate of uh, return. They have to pay more for their capital um, to get people to take it out of the bank or, or to not lend it to people. All right? That makes sense. So in the long run, you would expect equities to have the highest return. And in fact, that has been borne out by virtually every 20-year horizon. If you look since 1900 and work through 20 years and work for all of the 20-year periods moving forward month by month, you've got a good, a very, very high chance, about 90% plus chance of it being the highest performing asset class. So, so for a young person with a very long time horizon, say retirement planning, then equities, a very strong equity content, if, if not 100%, uh, certainly 80% or more, kind of does make sense. Now, why would someone who's got a very long time horizon, and by long I mean 25 years or more, mm-hmm. who believes in capitalism and has faith in the future, why would they not put 100% in equities? Well, the reason is because equities are volatile, um, you need something to dampen the volatility all right, and to act as a counterbalance. So if you had, say, 20% in defensive assets like um, low-paying bonds or cash equivalent, you know, bonds are uh, paying a fixed rate of return, fixed rate of income, then uh, what happens is when equities are surging, you can reduce them back to the 80%. So they've gone up to 95% of the portfolio. You trim them back and buy more of the defensive assets. And equally, when the equities are falling in value considerably, you're selling some of the defensive assets that might, say, represent now 30 or 35% when it should be 20% to buy more of those distressed assets. And what that effectively does over time is it dampens volatility, which is more important if you have a lump sum, less important if you're saving regularly. Okay. Yeah. So, Mm -hmm. so if you do all the maths, the most optimum portfolio, give or take, is about 80% equities, 20% bonds, so that you can benefit from this rebalancing, this selling what's gone up and buying what's gone down and rebalancing back to your asset allocation. But, but, but there are, it depends on the time horizon. It depends mm-hmm. on what your uh, thoughts of the future. But, for instance, my portfolio, and I'm in my mid-40s, has 80% equities, 20% bonds. Uh, and that's for our entire family. And that is maintained come what may. Yeah. Okay. Now, the equities this young reader holds include Barrett Developments and Taylor Wimpy. And they account for around 13% of his portfolio. It's quite a chunky mm. exposure to two mm. of these. And he has also said that you know he's saving up to buy a house. Um, does having some kind of exposure to residential property, uh, such as via house building shares, um, is it a good way to try and keep up with rising house prices? Well, um, obviously, it's just my opinion. And I've been giving advice for 25 years and I've been an investor for 25 years. So I've seen all this stuff. I'm not sure that buying shares in a property developer in any way correlates with, sh- with house prices. I mean, for instance, you can have very badly performing, uh, say, say Barrett or Wimpy have got something wrong with their land bank or there's been a big claim against them, against the mis- you know, properties they built or there's some uh, problem with the company or mismanagement. I mean, a company's shares, particularly an individual company's shares in one individual sector itself is an uncompensated risk. So in other words, you're not going to get compensated for having the risk of one company in one sector. And to think that it's going to hedge you against house prices, well, I don't think there's any correlation. I mean, the only difference, the only similarity is they've got the word house in them, house builder, house. So I, I think it's a misguided way of trying to hedge against house price growth. And it's, 
And in fact, even if you weren't trying to hedge against house price, it just wouldn't make sense. You have no extra return from having individual exposure to one company. You could be lucky and could outperform the market, but the chances are you're not going to be compensated in terms of additional return for that massive extra risk. I mean, just think of BP, um, think of Marks and Spencers, yeah. think of these companies, mm. RBS, that have all gone wonky over the years, and yet we thought they were impervious to problems. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you could have in your portfolio that would be a good hedge against rising house prices? Well, um, I mean, there are some ETFs, exchange-traded funds, which um, sort of are, are based on house price indices. Um, I can't remember the exact name, but if you do a Google search, you can probably find those. But there are two or three of those. But I think they're a bit I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'd want to be buying a house price index fund. I think the best thing you can do is have a as a sensible, diversified portfolio with a strong global emphasis, uh, heavy equity content, and just expose yourself to um, economic growth. Because let's face it, if there's no economic growth, there's no profits for companies, right? So if there's no profits for companies, no economic growth, and people haven't got the money to buy houses, then then at the end of the day, house prices have to be in check, don't they? Yes. So, so think of it this way, that I think economic growth um, is a proxy for house prices. If there is malaise in the economy um, and there's a restriction and the ability for people to fund houses, then they'll naturally find their own equilibrium. In other words, there'll be a, a price change, regardless of whether there's loads of supply. If people can't afford them, people can't afford the mortgages and can't afford the rents and can't afford to buy houses, then they naturally, there's a check and balance. I think that's a much more logical approach. It's not the, it's not the best approach because we don't know what the best is until after the event, but it's the most logical approach where you're not going to lose your shirt. Yeah, okay. Now, Verida was actually asking if you should have more India and Asia funds, because obviously, um, traditionally, certainly Asia has been associated with high growth. Obviously, things haven't been so rosy in that region. Um, and India's done well, but, you know, obviously, then I guess Indian shares are more expensive. So is it actually a good idea just now, if you've got a, a aim for high growth, to put your money into India and Asia funds? Well, again, with all these things, we have to look at the evidence, don't we? We have to look at the evidence, and then we have to apply common sense to it. So the evidence tells us that that um, rapidly urbanising and um, uh, growing economies, China, India, Asia, Indonesia, Turkey, etc., all of these economies um, are should experience, in the long run, higher growth than the West. Right? That just goes without saying, particularly as you've got more people coming from the land and living in uh, um, cities and wanting more a better standard of living and so on. So that's just common sense. The problem is that a lot of the, you've got a real mixed bag with all these these countries. Some are democracies, some are dictatorships, some there's um, you can't invest fully in the actual economy. So in other words, the stock markets in those countries and the ability to invest in that economic activity is very much restricted. So the investment universe is, is a very small part of the what we call the economic universe in those countries. Okay. And there's varying levels of disclosure and corruption and capital controls and so on. And markets aren't really free. So I think the reality is, 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 is how does the average person, first of all, capture that additional growth, that additional return that is there for the taking, but without losing their shirt and crying into their beer as a result of it? Because uh, history shows us that you can, if you want to lose all of your capital very quickly, then you invest in a very single, very specific single fund. I mean, just takes, for instance, I don't know, the Indonesian smaller companies fund, right? <laughs> Not there, there are two or three around, but let's just say, I mean, you know, you're looking at, yes, you could have double-digit growth some years, and but you also you could be looking at losing half of your money mm. because if they put capital controls in or the government suddenly, you know, does its dictatorship business, you can lose all your money for no fault of your own, nothing because it's not a proper market. So 
what should most investors do? Well, most investors should have a globally diversified portfolio. Okay, they should have a globally diversified portfolio, which means that it's not UK centric. It's not its home market. It should be broadly allocated around the world, but it should have a slightly higher allocation than the normal stock market indices would suggest to emerging markets and, and fast growing markets. So, for instance, in my portfolio and that of all the clients when I used to advise clients, um, we always we looked at the emerging markets uh, around the world and we said, OK, well, they make up let's say, for instance, 5% of the world's stock markets, we're going to put 15% into those markets to give them, mm. because they haven't grown, just to give us a little bit, not, not a massive yeah. bet, but a, a tilt towards those markets. And we used a globally diversified fund and we used a globally diversified emerging markets fund rather than one sector or one country or one area. So in answer to his question, it's not about should he be in it now, it's should he be in it for the 10 to 20 year time horizon? Mm. Yes, how should he do it? He should do it by having a tilt, by giving it a head start, more than a normal global asset allocation would suggest. And, and I would suggest somewhere between two to three times what emerging markets are as stock markets around the world. That's what you should be probably looking to, to give them a bit more of a tilt. Um, and if you're more cautious, uh, do less. And if you're more gung-ho, do more. Okay. When you say um, comparing to stock markets, and I take it, are you, do you have in mind something like MSCI World as your kind yes. of benchmarkers? Well, yeah, well, to, yeah, yeah. To get you take MSCI index, World, yeah, yeah or, or, or FT, all these different indices, mm. but essentially they do market weight, i.e. what is the value of these companies' shares, right? Mm. And the reason why you overweight and do more than those indices suggest is because, one, you can't invest in all of the economies of those countries because they are closed to a lot of extent and you can't, in other words, the investment universe doesn't re represent the economic universe in those countries. Um, and it, it just basically, uh, and because they haven't, obviously their, their, their future growth is yet to be reflected in share prices and, and the value that people place on them, that's why you give them a head start. But yes, it's basically a, an overweighting relative to the traditional indices based on what we call market weight, i.e. what the market currently values those stock markets at. Okay. Now, we obviously, um, you've just been saying, um, you know, yeah, diversify, take some risk, but not too much risk. So turning to the other side, um, this reader, he's actually got uh, direct holdings in defensive shares like Unilever and GlaxoSmithKline. Are these appropriate for um, a high-growth portfolio? Well, um, it's like anything. I, what did I say right at the beginning? I said, there is no additional compensation, i.e. no additional return expected from holding one company's share, let alone in one sector. And what has he got? He's got it doesn't matter whether these were defensive or growth. It doesn't make sense to hold these individual shares. It doesn't make sense. And he's got too small amount of money for him to have direct holdings. So, so in answer to your question, um, it doesn't make sense to hold, whether you were looking for income or defensive or growth, you're not going to be compensated or highly unlikely, let's put it that way, the odds are and the numbers and the empirical evidence show us you are unlikely to be given additional return for taking the massive risk of holding one company in one sector. So in answer to the question, yes, they should be binned because there is no benefit to you, regardless of what the actual return is, relative to the risk that you're taking. I mean, let's take it. Um, what were the two companies? Glaxo Unilever and GlaxoSmithKline. Well, they, let's say Unilever. They've only got to have a, some sort of problem with its consumer product division, right? Glaxo could have a big drug issue, you know, could lose mm. patents. All sorts of things can happen, regulatory problems. I mean, those companies could use... I'm not saying that they're going to go out of business, but there could be a massive change to their share price. You could, you could see those shares dropping a third. And what are you getting? 
You're not getting any extra return for the potential for you to lose a third. Now, you could lose a third in the stock market, but the chances of the whole stock market going down a third are a lot less than one company in one sector. Yeah. Now, you see, um, he's obviously he's not got a huge amount, so direct shares aren't kind of appropriate. Obviously, the larger your portfolio, I guess, the more, you know, the more risk you can take if you still, as long as you're diversified. So, I mean, at what kind of size level, you know, could a portfolio hit, uh, reach, uh, you know, what point could investors start thinking about, um, you know, rather than having maybe a diversified fund, um, making up their own basket, perhaps of individual shares? Well, let's put it this way. Um, I have a sizable portfolio, and I've been working a long time, so it's not because you know, I'm clever or anything. It's just I've saved a lot. And um, I use uh, a fund of index funds, which automatically rebalances for me. It costs me 25 basis points. That's a quarter of a percent a year. Okay? Um, and I've got a lot more than most people, um, and not as much as some. Um, and I don't buy individual shares. And do you know why? Uh, one, because um, I just can't be bothered to try and research and make sure that they're representative of the stock market as a whole. Secondly, individual shares do change from time to time and quite quickly, um, and I can't be bothered to keep going in and rebalancing and trading. That all costs money for me. Um, and thirdly, um, because I've got a global approach, um, UK companies, for instance, I know that UK companies, or UK registered stock market and the UK stock market do represent, obviously, a lot of overseas income. But I want a global portfolio. And the UK, for me, only represents something like, um, I think it's 15% of my total portfolio because I'm using a global fund. So, so I think if you're really interested in running your portfolio yourself and having a part-time job and a part-time hobby, then direct equities probably make sense when you've got at least £150,000 and you probably need somewhere between 12 and 20 holdings. Okay. okay? Um, but it, it just depends on your interest level, mm. how much time you've got. And at the end of the day, for me, as long as you're not paying too much for the fund and the fund is not trying to do anything clever like active management and, 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 the, and the trading that's going within it is just to replicate the market, it will do it for you. And quarter of a percent for me is like um, that's a good price to pay so I can do other things that are more important like, you know, staying married, staying healthy <laughs> and, you know, doing things I like. Okay, that's some useful points. I mean, I think our readers, our readers are quite keen on running their own portfolios, but it is a good point that if you don't have much money, then no, um, you don't want direct shares until I guess well, you've got a decent amount. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but, but if you if you ultimately do like the idea of having individual shares because you want to be connected with a company, you want the perks, the benefits, you like going to the annual meetings. Um, I'm not saying you, you know smaller amounts you can't do that, but you need to think very much more carefully about using much more diversified companies. Um, and perhaps what you do is you use a fund to start with as you build your assets and then you start switching. But I think the right figure is somewhere between one to two hundred thousand pounds. It's certainly I don't believe at, at much lower levels because you can't get the diversification and the cost versus, you know, the trading versus the amount you've got invested eats away at your returns. Much more so than this, you know, 20 or 25 basis points or even less. I mean, by, you can buy a UK index fund for less than 10, 10 less than one tenth of a percent. Okay. Thank you, Jason. Some really useful suggestions there. Now, over the past six months, markets have been rocked by volatility. And as an end to this doesn't appear to be in sight, now might be a good time to look at ways to mitigate the falls. Now, there's a number of funds out there which say they mitigate downside. So Kate has been done some number crunching to see which of these funds live up to their claims. Um, Kate, first of all, what kind of funds should you look to if you need downside protection? And how could this stem the amount of money you might lose? 
Um, well, yeah, it's important to say there are a number of ways of doing this, but the most obvious way, and we'll talk about that first, um, is through an absolute return fund. Um, so these sit in the targeted absolute return sector in terms of open-ended funds, and they seek to return positive results regardless of the way that the market moves. Um, and they normally kind of set a targeted amount they want to return above inflation or whatever, and are a mix of assets, so it'll be equities, fixed income, and usually some derivatives too. Uh, so they work in some quite interesting ways, and it's a bit like holding a hedge fund in some ways. Um, many of them use long, short equity positions. So that means that they'll have a book of stocks that they're buying and a book of stocks that they think are going to appreciate and a book of stocks they're selling, so taking short positions on, and they think those stocks are going to fall. So regardless, it's, it's kind of a market neutral strategy, because regardless of what happens, if you get those specific stocks right, then the fund will make money. And you can do a similar thing with pair trades. So some funds, for example, BNY, Mellon Absolute Return, that goes long and short on two stocks within the same sector. So, for example, BP and Shell, whichever way the oil price moves, if you get the right combination of an appreciating and depreciating stock, you're going to make money. Um, so the appeal of this is that, or the idea of it, is that whatever happens with markets, with sectors, these funds can make money. Um, so that's the kind of broad idea for, for absolute return. Now, you, you mentioned one of the funds, the uh, B1 My Mellon Fund, uh, as, as a good option. Have any of these other absolute return funds actually uh, done what they claim to do? Yeah, well, it's, it's quite impressive, actually. I mean, we looked at this in a number of ways. So I looked at performance for a start, so just the total returns um, and over a number of years compared to indices, and then looked at some risk metrics. So just performance-wise, I mean, on, on a kind of year-by-year year basis, these funds, um, or the ones that I've highlighted, which include Henderson UK Absolute Return, Jupiter Absolute Return, um, and this BNY Mellon Fund, when the market's falling by over 10%, over 20%, these funds generally are, they're kind of returning 1% or just falling by very small amounts, which is impressive. I mean, particularly in years like 2008, um, when you've got a FTSE fall, a FTSE all share fall of almost 30%, a FTSE 100 fall of 28%, um, you've got Newton Real Return making 4%. So, I mean, that's very impressive, isn't it? I mean, just the thought that markets are crashing and actually your portfolio is held up um, is is pretty motivating, really. Okay. Um, Jason, what's your view on absolute return funds? Do you think they're a good way to mitigate downside? Well, um, in a word, no. Um, you've got to remember, I mean, the interesting point that Kate was making, but it'd be interesting to see, compare what the performance was, because the stock market, I, I mean, I've lived through all this, you know, I've been in the business 25 years. Um, in March to uh, February 2009, yes, there was a 30% drop. But then what happened? The market went up 100% in an 18-month period. Now, it'd be interesting to then look at what those absolute return funds did. did. Now, there are three problems of absolute return funds. Uh, one is the way that they control the, 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 the downside is a mixture, as you just say, of derivatives, of pairing trades, holding cash. A lot of those funds will hold cash, particularly cautious funds are not absolute return. And therefore, obviously, as well, as well as reducing the downside, but it also significantly reduces the upside. Uh, the second thing is, of course, is there's a hell of a lot of costs involved in these funds. So you pay an awful lot over a long period of time. And the longer the time horizon, the, the more this happens. You pay a lot for this so-called smart uh, calling the shots. 
And uh, it's not untypical with both the uh, operating costs of the fund, the ongoing operating costs and the trading, for those costs to be at least 2% per annum. So that's quite a big amount to pay for, for some sort of an illusion of, uh, of lowering the, the downside. Um, and I suppose the third thing to think about here is that if you are trying to, if you're trying to control vol- volatility, is a, is a production of, of supply and demand, isn't it? It's, it's things going up and down, and that becomes more important for people who are relying on their portfolio to meet their um, ongoing spending, and they're taking a regular withdrawal from it, or at least annual withdrawals. And another way um, which you may well con- want to consider, which is a lot less expensive and more you're more in control of, is to have an adequate cash reserve. It's not perfect, this, by the way have a higher equity content in your main portfolio, but have a slightly higher cash reserve to meet one or one and a half or even through two or three years worth of spending withdrawal. So that in the very good years, you know, you've had a stonking stock market, you can transfer the gains or some of the gains, trim some of the gains and top your cash reserve up. And in the bad years or when things are looking a bit wonky and you don't want to be selling your some of your portfolio to meet your income needs, you dip into your cash reserve. Now, I've used that personally with clients for over 20 years, and it works. It's not the most efficient use of um, capital, but it's, it, you're not paying the costs. You're not relying on some smart um, uh, person to make the calls. And here's the thing. The empirical evidence, if you actually look at this and you regress the returns over varying periods, there is no evidence whatsoever that total return funds, hedge funds, uh, or even defensive funds – uh, do any better in a market downturn um, than the normal market as a whole. So in other words, when the market goes wonky and falls very, very severely, and we have a very severe fall like, like happened in 2009, the evidence is is that these absolute return funds have to sell good stuff to meet redemptions, and they're left with all the junk, and they have the same problem that everyone else has, and they don't actually outperform net of the costs of running them. Now, there will always be one or two funds that have, with hindsight done very well, the problem for most investors is how do you choose them? The one, choosing them in advance, uh, the good manager now is not necessarily going to be the same one in the next 10 years. So a bit like a clock will be right twice a day. There'll always be one or two managers that in hindsight did well, but I don't think for most people this is the right way to go. I think the right way to go is to have an adequate cash reserve to meet your your portfolio withdrawals if you're living off your portfolios. Be prepared to flex your spending and adapt it in the light of market events and have a tight rebalancing policy so that you take money out of the equity portfolio or the investment portfolio in good years, and, and you can dip into your cash reserve in the bad years so that you don't exacerbate market falls. I think it's true to say that not all of these funds um, are impressive and the costs are high, but there are definitely some which have really held up against big market crashes. So I think it's unfair to tie them all with the same brush no, there. There's a, no, the point I'm saying, Kate, is there is a price to pay for the yeah. illusion of my money hasn't fallen because what happens is you don't get the upside the following year. If you believe markets actually, markets are falling one third of the time, they're recovering another third and they are breaking new ground another third of the time. So you pay a big, big premium, you pay a big cost for having this downside protection. And, and, and I agree that when you have drawdowns in the portfolio and you are drawing money out, you exacerbate that drawdown, which is hence yeah. why we use the cash reserve uh, strategy instead. Okay. And that, in fact, cost is an interesting point, which is why we've looked at some other types of funds which you might want to use uh, for, the, you know, for the same aim. Now, mm. some of these are, we've looked at CF Ruffer Total Return as one and the closed-ended trust personal assets, both which actually have good reputations at preserving mm. capital um, which aren't in that targeted absolute return sector. And they've done very well, personal assets 
particularly and obviously you're not paying such a high premium there but also looked at ETFs in this space and that's been quite interesting um obviously passives being you know one of the cheapest possible ways of investing or having your money invested but trying to reduce your risk level and um in fact on every single risk metric this has been quite interesting that these um, low volatility ETFs they're called have drastically outperformed against the or volatile against their original ETFs and uh, incredibly low cost and they've also returned more in terms of total returns so we looked at iShares world minimum volatility against iShares core MSCI world so against the the kind of plain vanilla vanilla counterpart and it's returned in three years 40% compared to 27% which is quite a yeah. difference obviously uh- yeah, I, I, I totally valid. Uh, there are two points to make here. Three years is of nothing in, in, in investment terms, and I would like to see uh, I would like to see regression analysis is over ten and fifteen years. Okay, uh, and I'd like to look at that compared to what clients' uh, expectations of returns are. So, in other words, yeah, three I think years, people always need to be slightly skeptical, don't they, about back about modelling backwards on them. Um, oh you know. yeah, the, the part, <laughs> no, no, but you are still using past returns. So I'm saying to you, three years is nothing. I mean, we could move forward two months and then those returns and those, those analysis can be, be completely different if you have a massive market upswing. You know, we can all look, we're all clever with hindsight and regressing past returns and thinking about them in the future is, it, well, it's just of interest. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. But if you're going to look at returns, you're going to compare, you need to look at lots of different time horizons and you not just look at one, three, five and 10, but lots of lots of one, three, five and 10 periods. So you have to keep moving forward and looking at the probability of range of returns. Um, so, I mean, I suppose that's the that's the, the big issue really. Yeah, I mean, the, it, time will t- it's a slightly time will tell, isn't it? Because these are um, these strategies haven't been around for years and years, but I no. think it is. Uh, no. I think it's fair to but, say that in the time they have been around, they have sure. been proving there, their point. There is, a, there is another thing to say about ETS, which most people don't aware of, and I'm a big fan of, of, uh, of index funds, but I'm not so keen on ETS. So if I didn't have to use them for a sector or an area, I wouldn't be that keen on them. And the reason is, is because in the periods of very extreme market um, volatility, and we're in volatile times now, and that's great and fine, but. ETFs um, are meant to, the price you get for your ETFs, buying or selling it, should be almost close to its asset value. And that's done by what people don't realize is a complex uh, internal mechanism done by the fund manager and the underlying bank or whatever that's supporting it. And if there's any problem there, if, if the ETF market gets so large, um, it sort of it starts to dominate too much. Uh, there, there is a problem. It's not like an open-ended index fund, you know, a mutual fund or a unit trust or an OIC. Um, in the, the sense that the market, the price of, that you get for buying or selling, it depends on how efficient the manager is at operating the arbitrage that goes within it to keep making sure that they can keep making a market. So ETFs have grown massively and they do have a part to play, but don't assume that they don't come with additional operational risks, which most people aren't aware of. Although arguably the liquidity risks are lower because you do have that secondary market than with a mutual fund, which could have issues with redemption. In the times well, of a crisis. Well, well let's, let's say that this, if someone is redeeming anything, okay, the market is the market. If you've got a mutual, open-ended mutual fund, okay, uh, that has to liquidate, yeah, fine, I understand that. But the same with the ETF is that there's additional factor with this, that the underlying institution that has to price that ETF has a whole complex set of things it has to do to make sure it can meet those redemptions and that they match the net asset value. Most people aren't aware there is an additional operational uh, risk with ETFs to do with the pricing mechanism, which if we are in extreme market conditions, 
extreme, which is not there with an open-ended mutual fund. I'm not talking here about the underlying assets. I'm talking about the, the actual ability for you to get the unit price of the ETF, regardless of the underlying assets. Kate, I think that's um, a subject you've looked at in some other articles. So um, mm. I'll um, I'll go in because it is it is a whole different topic. Mm. I was sure. saying, I think for our readers, um, if um, if you are concerned about Kate's written quite a few, and it is something we get ongoing basis. So do check the website and do check the magazine. Now, Kate, um, you've also been looking at a report on UK equity income funds. Um, now, this highlights a number of funds which are making good returns and have attractive yields, even as the FTSE 100 dividend cuts gather pace. Kate, how are these funds managing to continue to pay dividends to the investors if uh, you know UK market uh, is in trouble? Uh, well, the very basic answer is by taking their dividends from the smaller companies. So from moving to FTSE 250 stocks rather than FTSE 100 stocks for income payouts. Um, the most successful funds have been the ones which have more small to mid cap bias. So I've actually been finding the income coming from there rather than from the FTSE 100 when we've seen stocks like Anglo-American, Glencore cutting dividends and we've got wider kind of threats to, to the big companies there. Okay. Now, um, how does Samlin, the company which drew up this report, decide which of the best equity income funds? So it ranks them according to seven different criteria. And the idea is it's based on performance, volatility and income. So you couldn't have a, a very high income paying fund okay. that was extremely volatile at yeah. the top. It's, so it's not just the one of the highest yield. No, then, okay, exactly. that's yeah, that's good, uh, good, good policy. Yeah. Um, and um, in this report, um, you know, who, who were some of the uh, top dogs? Yeah, well, the top one is Unicorn UK Income. And the second top is PFS Chelverton UK Equity. And, and those have been the two uh, the two top for the past year and the year before, I think. And both have quite a concentrated portfolio. So um, Unicorn has a concentrated portfolio of up to 50 stocks and a small to mid-cap bias. And that one focuses on companies with um, the potential for dividend growth. And then PFS Chelverton, that does it by screening all small and mid-caps above 50 million and invests only in stocks yielding at least 4% on a 12-month view. Um, and it also it adds stocks until they fall below a yield of 3%. So and then and then they're out. So the idea being that, you know, you've got stocks there with sustainable growing dividends um, and quite high yields. OK, and that's interesting. They both focus on small and mid caps and, and have done well in the past. So, uh, uh, yeah, perhaps investors should um, take note. You know, the FTSE 100 is not the only place you no. can find attractive equity income. Okay, um, that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. So it just remains to thank Jason Butler, independent personal finance expert and author of the FT Guide to Wealth Management and personal finance writer Kate Bealey. You can read more on how to build up a lump sum, low volatility funds and resilient equity income funds in this week's magazine and on the website. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.